To stay informed of new episode postings and other updates, please follow at GermaniaPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 3, The Teutoburg Dream. Following the completion of the Gallic Wars in 50 BC, relations between Rome and Germania entered a period of stasis due to the immense internal instability that the Romans dealt with over the next 25 years. Even after Octavian secured his place as the sole ruler in Rome in the year 27 BC, he then launched a campaign of near-constant warfare that stretched the borders of Rome to roughly the form they would hold for the next five centuries, give or take a Britannia. It was only a matter of time before he would turn his attention back to the conquest of Germania. Since we are skipping ahead to his rule as emperor, we can start referring to Octavian as Augustus. Now, Augustus Caesar is obviously one of the most important figures in world history, and his list of triumphs and accomplishments is certainly impressive. Much like his relative Julius Caesar, in just about any other context, he would deserve multiple episodes covering his early life, rise to power, significant actions, and historical legacy. For our story, however, we could ignore all of that and focus only on his greatest singular failure. By 17 BC, Augustus was the undisputed ruler of Rome and needed to start turning his attention towards securing a succession plan that would see his policies continued while also keeping his family in power. God forbid the Senate uses death as an excuse to go back to a Republican government. I'm sure it will be hard for modern listeners to imagine, but a big part of why everyday citizens embraced the Caesars was that the Senate had become a venal, greedy, corrupt organization of aristocrats who never took action to improve the lives of the common people and seemed paralyzed by indecision in the face of any serious threat. If you can even picture such a thing. The common people were not too upset about these vain old men losing their political authority in favor of someone who at least promised security, stability, bread, and circuses. At this point, Augustus' vision was to expand the borders of the Roman Empire to the Danube and Elba rivers. The German tribes continued to raid into Gaul and posed a threat to stability in the region. In 17 BC, a major offensive from a coalition of tribes forced Augustus to leave Rome and come to the region personally. The uprising involved three tribes, the Asipites, the Tincteri, and the Sugambri. From our last episode, we know that the Asipites and the Tincteri were victims of a total slaughter at the hands of Julius Caesar's legions nearly 40 years previously. They took this opportunity to seek revenge for the 400,000 men, women, and children who had been massacred. The Germans gathered up all of the Romans who were on the eastern side of the Rhine, primarily traders and merchants, and crucified them. They then began raiding on the western side of the river into Roman Gaul. The Roman governor in Gaul, Marcus Lollius, gathered up troops of the 5th Legion with auxiliary cavalry to pursue the Germans. Unfortunately for Lollius, the cavalry that were sent ahead to scout the area advanced too quickly and were ambushed by the tribes. In their haste to retreat to safety, they ended up running into the advancing legion. 
The Germans continued to attack, and in the confusion, the Romans were forced to retreat. Olius was able to organize his soldiers for a more orderly retreat, and while embarrassing, the actual casualty numbers amongst the Romans were likely low. However, in the confusion, they did lose the standard eagle of the 5th legion. When the news reached Rome, Augustus immediately traveled into Gaul, to the capital at Lugdunum, the site of the modern city of Lyon. He wanted his presence to both calm the Romans in the area, while also forcing the tribes to reconsider any further advances. Fortunately, before Augustus could reach the frontier, Lollius was able to regroup and launch a counterattack. He drove the Germans back across the Rhine, and during this time he likely recovered the legionary eagle. The available records do not treat the loss or recovery of the eagle as a major event, which indicates it was most likely recovered quite quickly. At this point, the three tribes were forced to submit to peace on Rome's terms. While the ultimate goal of Augustus was to advance across the Rhine and force all of Germania to submit to Roman rule, at this point he was not quite ready for that campaign. Throughout their history, the terms that an adversary could negotiate with Rome depended at least as much on the plans and ambitions of the ruler as the principles at stake and the offenses committed by their enemies. Augustus began advancing his family members into positions of power, positions that they would not have typically been eligible for under the original cursus honorum. By 16 BC, he wanted his stepsons, Tiberius Augustus Caesar and Drusus Julius Caesar, to begin leading campaigns to conquer the people around the Alps, further securing the Italian peninsula and creating an additional buffer between the barbarians of Germania. Between 15 and 12 BC, Tiberius and Drusus led multiple campaigns to bring the provinces of Noricum, Raetia, and Pannonia fully into the empire. Previously, both Roman merchants and, on occasion and to much embarrassment, Roman armies had been forced to pay tribute to those tribes in order to access the Alpine passes into Italy. These victories fully secured the passes for Rome for the next several centuries. Beginning in 11 BC, Drusus then led Roman troops into the eastern Rhineland to wage war on the Germanic tribes, particularly the Cherusci. Drusus was successful, even reaching the Elbe River in 9 BC, before dying when he fell from his horse and injured his leg, with the wound never healing properly. Tiberius took his brother's place and continued the campaigns. In 8 BC, while Augustus was in Lugdunum, he summoned representatives from all of the tribes to come to him so that they could negotiate a treaty. All of the requested German tribes sent ambassadors, with the exception of the Sugambri. When Augustus declared that he would not negotiate with any of the tribes until all were present, messages were sent back to encourage the Sugambri to send a delegation. Upon their arrival, however, Augustus had the entire party of the Sugambri arrested. Rather than be used as pawns in Rome's dealings with their people, the entire delegation committed suicide. As part of these agreements, the Cherusci and other tribes were forced to give up men to serve as Roman auxiliaries and send important hostages as a guarantee of future peace. Two of the hostages sent were the sons of Sigimurus the Conqueror, a chieftain of a noble family within the Cherusci tribe. Arminius and his younger brother, Flavius. Taking Arminius as a hostage began a chain of events that closed off Germania to Roman conquest forever.
We know very little about the early life of Arminius, including his birth name. He was born around 18 BC, making him around 10 years old when he was sent as a hostage with his younger brother. As sons from an important family, Arminius and Flavius were well treated and given a Roman military and cultural education alongside the children of Roman nobility from the senatorial class. The expectation was that they would serve as pro-Roman leaders within Germania upon reaching adulthood. Arminius rose to the rank of equestrian, gaining him Roman citizenship and making him eligible for military service in the cavalry. In all likelihood, it was when he gained Roman citizenship that we, he would have taken the Latin name Arminius. In 4 AD, Arminius was given command of the Cheruscan auxiliaries within the Roman army. During that year, the legions under Tiberius spent the campaign season across the Rhine, moving as far east as the Elbe River, dealing with resistance to Rome's presence in Germania. At this point, several tribes had begun to welcome the Romans, as they thought that they could get a better deal from them than they could from the dominant tribal militaries. While the urban lifestyle did not appeal to the Germanic tribes, there is archaeological evidence of the beginnings of cities built around Roman towns that date to this period. Perhaps in time, Germania would come to resemble Gaul and other territories that had fallen under Roman rule. Over the winter of 5 to 6 AD, Tiberius prepared to annex another piece of Germania, with a focus on invading Bohemia, the region between the Upper Rhine and Upper Danube. This area was occupied by one of the offshoot tribes of the Suebi, the Marcomanni, under King Marabotus. Marabotus spent time during his youth in Rome, most likely as a hostage, and then spent time serving in the Roman legions. He likely returned to his people with the intention of aligning the tribe with Rome. He was clever, charismatic, and a strong military leader. The Roman writer Valerius Maximus said of Marabotus that he was, quote, a barbarian by race, but not by intelligence, end quote. At this point, it does not appear that Marabotus had done anything to break his alliance with Rome, but Augustus and the other Roman leaders were concerned that he had united a large community with a well-trained army under his command, and Bohemia bordered Roman provinces in Pannonia and Noricum. From interactions with the Marcomanni ambassadors, the Romans were also upset to discover that this tribe expected to be treated as equals to the empire. A vicious feedback loop had started. As the army of Marabotus grew, the Romans sent more troops to the frontier, which encouraged Marabotus to build a bigger army in defense. In the spring of 6 AD, the Romans had assembled a force of 100,000 men, including 11 legions plus auxiliaries, to crush the Marcomanni and secure their northern border. The troops had crossed the river in two columns and were about to link up to confront Marabotus when they received news that a revolt had begun in the Balkans. The Great Illyrian Revolt would last from 6 to 9 AD and required relocating eight of the 11 legions to the Balkans. Marabotus was safe for the time being. During the Great Illyrian Revolt, Arminius led the Cheruscan auxiliaries in support of Rome, serving with distinction. Sometime in 7 or 8 AD, Arminius and his troops were relocated to Germania to serve under the, gover the governor Publius Quintilis Verus. 
providing support to the three remaining legions along the Rhine as they attempted to pacify the area and protect the established permanent forts on the eastern side of the Rhine. In the years since he left Germania, the tribes along the Rhine had become increasingly disunited. Armenius' father, Segamaris, was accused of cowardice in the aftermath of Drusus' invasion for having agreed to a peace treaty with the Romans. Infighting increased over the next dozen years or so, with trade and political alliances between the approximately 50 tribes deteriorating. With the Romans all fighting the Illyrians, the tribes did use the opportunity to reassert some of their independence, taxing the Roman merchants and traders who had come to the area to do business. While Arminius outwardly appeared to support Rome, at some point he had begun to sour on the relationship between Rome and the Cherusci. He had been waiting for an opportunity to unite the Germanic tribes and expel the Romans from his homeland. Now that he was advising the governor of the area, who was suddenly undermanned due to the reallocation of troops, he saw an opportunity to drive the Romans off. During the campaign season of 9 AD, Varius marched an army of three legions plus six cohorts of auxiliaries into Germania in a show of force. By the autumn of 9 AD, with supplies running low, Varus began marching his army back towards the Rhine so they could break into winter quarters. At this point, Arminius brought Varus a false report of a rebellion in northern Germany. While the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions were ready for the campaign season to be over, Varus agreed to pull them back across the Rhine to suppress the rebellion. Arminius had been in contact with members of the Cherusci tribe, along with allies in the Chatti, Marci, Chassi, Bructerae, and Sicambri. While they had been divided, nothing unified the tribes like opposition to Rome. Varus had contributed to this with heavy-handed treatment, including crucifixion of any insurgents. He did not treat the Germans as allies, but as subjects that he could exploit. Arminius directed the Roman legions through the Teutoburg forest through terrain unfamiliar to them as the fastest way to reach the rebels. The Romans were marching along a narrow road through the forest, made muddy by recent rains. Not expecting trouble at this point in the journey, they did not march in battle-ready order, nor did they send advanced scouts. They trusted that their Cherusci allies who had gone ahead would send reports of any trouble. Their line stretched out due to the large baggage train with civilian attendants, with their lines reaching as long as 15 to 20 kilometers, or 9 to 13 miles. Since Arminius understood Roman tactics, he knew best how to attack. The tribes waited until half the army was through the forest before attacking, cutting the army in two. They had set up walls along the sides of the path, allowing them to attack from safety and making it difficult for the Romans to charge towards them. While the rear half under Varus was able to escape and set up a fortified camp for the night, the forward army was surrounded and annihilated. The Romans attempted a breakout in the morning, which came with heavy losses before they could escape into another forest. They attempted to keep retreating under nightfall, but as the tribes were more familiar with the geography, they were able to get ahead of the Romans and set another trap. There, a sandy, open strip on which the Romans could march was constricted by a hill, so that there was a gap of only about 100 meters, or 330 feet, 
between the woods and the swampland at the edge of a great bog. The road was further blocked by a trench, and towards the forest, an earthen wall had been built along the road, permitting the Germanic alliance to attack the Romans from cover. The Romans made a desperate attempt to storm the wall, but failed, and the highest-ranking officer in the army next to Varus, Legatus Pneumonius Valla, abandoned the troops by riding off with the cavalry. His retreat was in vain, however, as he was overtaken by the Germanic cavalry and killed shortly thereafter. The Germanic warriors then stormed the field and slaughtered the disintegrating Roman forces. Of the 20,000 Roman soldiers who entered the Teutoburg forest, it is estimated that at least 15,000 died, and many of the officers, including Varus, took their own lives by falling on their swords. Tacitus wrote later that many officers were sacrificed by the Germanic forces as part of their religious ceremonies, cooked in pots and their bones used for rituals. Others were ransomed off. Most of the common soldiers were enslaved. When an amateur archaeologist discovered the apparent remains of the battle in 1987 at Calcrisi Hill in Osunbruck, the findings included 6,000 pieces of Roman equipment, but only a single item that is clearly Germanic, part of a spur, suggesting few Germanic losses. Now, to be fair, after any battle, the victors would most likely remove the bodies of their fallen, and the Germanic practice at the time was to bury warriors with their battle gear, so that would contribute to the lack of German relics in the area. Additionally, several thousand Germanic soldiers were deserting militiamen from the Roman army and would appear to be Roman in the archaeological digs. Still, 6,000 to 1 speaks to the breadth of the destruction. The victory was followed by a clean sweep of all the Roman forts, garrisons, and cities east of the Rhine. The remaining two Roman legions in Germania, commanded by Varus's nephew Lucius Nonius Asperinus, elected to stay put to try and hold the Rhine frontier. One fort, Aliso, fended off the Germanic alliance for many weeks, perhaps even a few months. After the situation became untenable, the garrison, accompanied by some survivors of the Teutoburg forest, broke through the siege and reached the Rhine. They resisted long enough for Asperinus to organize the Roman defense on the Rhine and for Tiberius to arrive with a new army, preventing Arminius from crossing the Rhine and invading Gaul. The Romans who were taken prisoner had the same grim fate as their fallen comrades. All of the officers were sacrificed to the German gods. Some were burned, some boiled alive, others crucified. The common soldiers were used as slaves, and many brought back these reports once they were liberated several years later. In an effort to expand his tribal alliance, Arminius sent Varus's severed head to Maribotus, king of the Marcomanni. The trophy served as an offer for an anti-Roman alliance. Due to a mixture of a personal dislike of Arminius, as well as seeing an opportunity to get back in Rome's good graces, Maribotus declined the alliance, sending the head to Rome for burial, and remained neutral throughout the ensuing punitive campaign. Later on, a brief inconclusive war broke out between the two Germanic leaders. Other trophies that were taken from the legions were sent off to different tribes, either as a reward for those who had fought or as an inducement to others to motivate them to join the coalition. When news reached the imperial court, 
Augustus was devastated. The legion numbers 17, 18, and 19 were retired, never to be used again. Augustus marked the anniversary of the battle as a day of mourning for the rest of his life. During his final years, Augustus was known to periodically remark, Quintile vere legionis rede, Quintilis veris, give me back my legions. All of the Roman settlements east of the Rhine were abandoned at this point. It was, there was no army to keep them safe, and it was not hard to imagine how the tribes would treat the Romans in their territory. As part of his will that was opened upon his death five years later, Augustus declared that the Romans should maintain their existing boundaries and not attempt to expand the empire further. While his successors held to this decree as it related to Germania, they still needed to reassert some control in the area and take revenge on Arminius. But that had to wait for a while. The tribes had expelled the Romans from their territory, but the alliance would not last for long. The army broke apart rather than push across the Rhine, as the different tribes wanted to cart their spoils home. Without the common enemy of Rome to unite them, Arminius's coalition began to splinter. Eventually, the Romans were ready to respond and take revenge for their losses. Under the command of Germanicus, the Romans marched another army, along with allied Germanic auxiliaries, into Germania in 16 AD. He forced a crossing of the Weser near modern Minden, suffering some losses to a Germanic skirmishing force, and forced Arminius's army to stand in open battle at Edicitaviso and the Battle of the Weser River. Germanicus's legions inflicted huge casualties on the Germanic armies while sustaining only minor losses. The final battle was fought at the Angrivian Wall, west of modern Hanover, repeating the pattern of high Germanic fatalities, which forced them to flee beyond the Elba. Germanicus, having defeated the forces between the Rhine and the Elba, then ordered Caius Silius to march against the Chatti with a mixed force of 3,000 cavalry and 30,000 infantry, and lay waste to their territory, while Germanicus, with a larger army, invaded the Marseille and devastated their land, encountering no resistance. Germanicus then had some of the survivors of the Tuberg forest lead his army to the site of the battle. The Romans saw the remnants of the battle and the sacrifices that followed. The remains of the Roman soldiers were buried so that they might have peace and death. With his main objectives reached and winter approaching, Germanicus ordered his army back to their winter camps. After a few more raids across the Rhine, which resulted in the recovery of two of the three legions' eagles lost back in 9 AD, Tiberius ordered the Roman forces to halt and withdraw across the Rhine. Germanicus was recalled to Rome and informed by Tiberius that he would be given a triumph and then reassigned to a new command. Germanicus' campaign had been taken to avenge the Teutoburg slaughter. Arminius, who had been considered a very real threat to the stability by Rome, was now defeated. Once his Germanic coalition had been broken and honor avenged, the huge cost and risk of keeping the Roman army operating beyond the Rhine was not worth any likely benefit to be gained. Tacitus, with some bitterness, claims that Tiberius's decision to recall Germanicus was driven by his jealousy of the glory Germanicus had acquired, and that an additional campaign the following summer would have concluded the war and facilitated a Roman occupation of territories between the Rhine and the Elba. But if there is one lesson history has taught us about warfare, it is that it is best not to listen to the rantings of vain politicians and philosophers 
who will do no fighting when they say that continuing to fight for just a little longer will bring total victory and glory. From the time of the rediscovery of Roman sources in the 15th century, the battles of the Teutoburg Forest have been seen as a pivotal event, resulting in the end of Roman expansion into Northern Europe. This theory became prevalent in the 19th century and formed an integral part of the mythology of German nationalism. More recently, some scholars questioned this interpretation, advancing a number of other reasons why the Rhine was a practical boundary for the Roman Empire and more suitable than any other river in Germania. Logistically, armies on the Rhine could be supplied from the Mediterranean via the Rhone and Mosul, with only a brief stretch of portage. Armies on the Elba, on the other hand, would have had to been supplied either by extensive overland routes or ships traveling the hazardous Atlantic seas. Economically, the Rhine was already supporting towns and sizable villages at the time of the Gallic con conquest. Northern Germania was far less developed, possessing fewer villages and had little food surplus and a far lesser capacity for tribute. Thus, the Rhine was both significantly more accessible from Rome and better suited to supply sizable garrisons in the regions beyond. There were also practical reasons to fall back from the limits of Augustus's expansion in this region. The Romans were mostly interested in conquering areas that had a high degree of self-sufficiency, which could provide a tax base for them to extract from. Most of Germania did not have the level of urbanism compared to some of the Celtic Gallic settlements, which were in many ways already integrated into the Roman trade network, especially in the case of southern Gaul. In a cost-benefit analysis, the prestige to be gained by conquering more territory was outweighed by the lack of financial benefits accorded to conquest. Roman punitive campaigns into Germania continued, and they were intended less for conquest or expansion than they were to force the Germanic alliance into some kind of political structure that would be compliant with Roman di diplomatic efforts. Despite his great victory, Arminius was never able to unite all the tribes under his leadership. His brother Flavius remained loyal to Rome and served in the legions under Germanicus during the punitive campaigns. Once Germanicus and his army were permanently back across the Rhine, a war broke out between Arminius and Maribotus. It ended with Maribotus fleeing to Ravenna and Roman protection, but Arminius failed to break into the natural fortifications of Bohemia, and the war ended in stalemate. Fearing he was becoming too powerful, Arminius was assassinated by his opponents within the Cherusci in 21 AD. After Arminius was defeated and dead, Rome tried to control Germania indirectly by appointing client kings. Italicus, a nephew of Arminius, was appointed king of the Cherusci. Bangio and Tito became vassal princes of the powerful Subai and the Quadian client king Venius was imposed as a ruler of the Marcomanni. Emperors continued to feed the discord between the tribes in order to support one ruler over another who would then be more willing to negotiate with Rome. While it will be a while, Arminius will re-enter our story again. During the push for German unification during the 19th century, Arminius became a German national hero. Obviously, a Latin name would no longer suit him, so people began referring to him by a German name that had first been used in the 16th century. They called him Hermann, 
the man of war.